Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. Today, we want to move our discussion into the realm of pediatrics. We want to focus today on the physiological differences between adults and peds patients, all the way from when a baby is born at term up to when they go through their adolescence into adulthood, some of the changes that we will see. Most of these changes that we're going to talk about focus primarily in those first few weeks to months to years. And after a few years, you kind of see the changes shift more to the adulthood values. So we're going to spend most of our time talking about the first two years of life. But really, these next few talks that we want to do on the pediatric realm can be anywhere from the neonatal side of things up to adolescence. So just keep that in mind. So Tanner, do you just want to start us off here with the normal values and vital signs that we're going to see when a baby is born and as they transition here as they get older? Right. And I don't know about you, but every time I see the vital signs for a baby or a young child, I'm thinking, oh man, you know, like something's wrong because they're super tachycardic, blood pressure is low. And I remember one time I was taking care of patients and their monitors from over at the newborn nursery was showing up on our general monitor. And we were trying to figure out who was like in septic shock because of the crazy heart rate and blood pressure. And so it's important that we have a good understanding of the baseline and what's normal because it obviously is very different from the adults. So in a newborn, the normal heart rate is going to be around 140. Your respiratory rate is going to be increased. 40 to 60 is normal. And then your blood pressure is going to be around 70s over 40s. When you see systolics less than around 60, then you're starting to think that the baby is hypotensive. Hypertensive would be above 80. So you want to keep it in that 60 to 80 range. As they continue to age, the blood pressure will increase. And so you'll eventually see an increased blood pressure. Obviously, in an adult, you're more towards the 120 over 80. And then their heart rate and respiratory rate will decrease as they age. They will have a really high oxygen consumption status. So your respiratory rate is going to be really increased. You'll have an increased minute ventilation. And that's primarily to blow off all of the excess CO2 that's being generated. And so you'll see, like we said, that increased respiratory rate 40 to 60. The baby's heart is going to be different. And so the actual muscle is underdeveloped compared to an adult heart. So you won't have a really strong stroke volume. This is part of the reason that their heart rate is going to be increased to kind of make up for that decreased pump. This is one thing that you really want to pay attention to because in the adult, a lot of times we'll manipulate SVR to increase blood pressure and treat a lower blood pressure. But with a baby, if you increase that SVR, then they won't have enough contractility to overcome the SVR. And so if you're trying to treat a low blood pressure, you wouldn't want to use Neo in this instance because that's just going to clamp down your systemic vascular resistance. You would want to use something like ephedrine instead that is not going to have such a drastic effect on your SVR. Right, and this is primarily due to the fact that in these younger populations, their parasympathetic system is more prevalent than their sympathetic nervous system. So when a stressful situation arises, usually in adulthood, we think the flight or flight, and we're going to have that sympathetic system just be heightened, and we're going to have this tachycardia, we're going to have hypertension, all due to that sympathetic nervous system. 
in the baby and in the, the few months after delivery, they're starting to really develop that sympathetic nervous system. And at that time, the parasympathetic system overrides the sympathetic. And that's why when a baby is put in stressful situations, even when they're in utero, they're going to have bradycardia develop. And that's why when we talk about fetal heart rate rhythms and stuff like that, you're going to have bradycardia when they have hypoxia and stress simply because that parasympathetic system is more heightened compared to the sympathetic nervous system. And that still plays a role here after delivery for the first few months until that sympathetic system can really get activated and more developed. So as Tanner was saying there, that's why we're going to have this lack of ability to alter a stroke volume to different physiological changes that we're going to see happening to the baby. And as a result, we don't want to have drastic changes to the SVR because that heart rate is going to have to fluctuate so much because the stroke volume cannot compensate. And we're going to get into this later in our talk when we talk about the cardiac abnormalities. But really, after the delivery of the baby, when the cord is clamped and that placenta is removed from the circulation with the baby, you're going to have a dramatic increase in SVR because that placenta is a very low resistance field where it does not provide a lot of resistance. So that SVR is pretty low up until this point. And the SVR starts to increase now after you clamp the cord, but it's still relatively low compared to adulthood. So keep that in mind. When we talk about the makeup of the blood volume, it's important to know that this comparative to their weight is going to be higher and a newborn compared to an adult. So your estimated blood volume per kilogram is about 90 mils in a baby if they're born before 37 weeks. If a baby is born after 37 weeks, then it might be just a touch lower, 80 to 90. And then for infants, it'll be closer to the adult range of 70, about 75. And then as an adult, you're 70 mils per kilogram. Your total body water is going to be higher than it would be in an adult. So if you remember from last episode, we talked about your total body concentration is about 60% water. In a baby, it's going to be closer to 85%. So that's if they're born around 37 weeks or prior. If they're born after 37 weeks and into the you know early stages of life, it's closer to 75%. And then again, that just continues to decrease as you move into adulthood. We'll talk about this next week when we discuss specific pharmacology for neonates, but it's important to know that the ECF here plays an important role with the drugs that you give. And so since they have more total fluid, you need to know that this fluid is primarily in the ECF compared to the intracellular fluid. So the drugs that we give that are going to be in the extracellular fluid are going to have a greater volume of distribution. You'll actually have to increase your dosages of these Sucks would be a good example of that. And so you'll actually have to give an increased dose of these meds simply because their extracellular fluid is a higher concentration comparatively to an adult. And while we're talking about blood and its contents in the baby, the hemoglobin is going to be different in the first few months. So we call it hemoglobin F for fetal hemoglobin. When a baby is born, it has complete hemoglobin F. And what's different here compared to adult hemoglobin is that the fetal hemoglobin does not bind to 2,3-DPG. Now, we don't talk about 2,3-DPG really at all, except when we're talking about the P50 curve with the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. That's the only time that I really have come into context with 2,3-DPG. So if you remember, the more 2,3-DPG there is, the further right the P50 will shift on this oxyhemoglobin curve. So if a fetal hemoglobin does not bind to this 2,3-DPG, we're going to have a leftward shift. And remember, a left shift in this P50 
will cause the hemoglobin to love and hold on to the oxygen. And this makes sense because in utero, we want the baby to take as much oxygen as it can at that placenta exchange from the mom's hemoglobin, which is going to release more because the mom's hemoglobin, if you remember, has that P50 shifted to the right, which causes it to release more. So in the first few months after delivery, this fetal hemoglobin is going to really love and hold on to that oxygen because it does not bind to 2,3-DPG. After about four to six months, this is all replaced by adult hemoglobin, which is the regular hemoglobin that binds to that 2,3-DPG, and that P50 shifts back to normal. It's important to note here that while it's shifting from the fetal hemoglobin to the adult, as those fetal hemoglobins die off, the total hemoglobin count is actually going to drop closer to 10 grams per deciliter, but then it'll increase back up to that normal level of, depending on if it's a female or male, say 14, 15, by about a year old. So just keep that in mind that while it's shifting, you're going to have a deduction in the amount of hemoglobin. So the next thing we talk about are the kidneys. And the big changes here is due to the decrease in your blood pressure and ultimately your decreased GFR. And so the biggest thing that you'll see here is that you'll have a decreased ability to tolerate fluid shifts, basically. And it's not able to accommodate these drastic changes also doesn't have a good ability to concentrate the urine. And so you'll have excretion of sodium, you'll have excretion of glucose. It's not until about age two where you start to see the GFR match what you see in adults. But this is something that you, again, need to be aware of. If you're giving medications for these patients, you need to understand which ones are renally excreted and which ones might have active metabolites that may have implications for your child. So before we move into respiratory, let's take a quick stop on the hepatic system. Neonates are going to have a reduced hepatic enzyme activity. This is really over the first week to few months after delivery that you're going to start to see this develop. They have a decreased hepatic blood flow and they have an immature first pass metabolism. So anything that is brought in through the digestive tract is not going to be processed as well and metabolized during that first pass. So medications that we give through that route are going to have an increased bioavailability simply because they get into the systemic circulation at higher dosage than it would in adult level. These infants also are going to have lower albumin levels, alpha glycoproteins, and other hepatic protein concentrations. So just keep that in mind. As Tanner talked about with succinylcholine, Earlier in this talk, plasma cholinesterase is going to be decreased in the first few weeks to few months of life. This doesn't really play that much of an effect, though, in the breakdown of succinylcholine. We still give an increased dose for what Tanner was talking about. But like he said, we'll get more into that when we get into pharmacology next week. But just keep in mind here that during the first few weeks, you're going to have a decreased amount of these hepatic proteins and enzymes that are being made. One of the enzymes that is going to be reduced is glucuronal transferase, which is basically the enzyme that is going to be responsible for the breakdown of bilirubin. And this bilirubin level is going to rise in the first few days of life because that hepatic system hasn't been fully developed yet. This is often why you see babies in the first couple of days need to be put on treatment to reduce that bilirubin. I know my son, when he was born, we had to come home and have him sleep under this special light blanket for a week and we had to go get his levels checked every single day until his liver started producing enough of that enzyme to break down the bilirubin. So this is pretty normal. Uh, And like I said, it'll go away typically in the first few weeks. So now Tanner, do you just want to take us away with the respiratory? I know this is the big change and more specifically the thing that we 
really care about the most for anesthesia is how we're going to handle this population different from adults. Yeah. So this is kind of a, like meat and potatoes of what we want to talk about today because of just how one different it is than adults. And two, as anesthesia providers, we're especially interested in how to manage the respiratory system. So the first thing that you want to think about is if you're giving an anesthetic for a neonate under the age of about 60 weeks, they're going to be at increased risk for postoperative apnea. So you can give a stimulant that would help treat that prophylactically to just make sure that they're not having this postoperative apnea. Remember that young babies are driven by the respiratory rate. And so if they have complications with the respiratory system, that's going to cause complications for the heart rate, blood pressure, obviously the oxygenation, things like that. And so this postoperative apnea could be extremely detrimental. So we want to try to manage that ahead of time if we can. You also should know that babies have smaller alveolar surface area compared to the adult population. And so you'll have decreased lung compliance, which results in a lower vital capacity. And then you'll also see per kilogram a lower total lung capacity than compared to an adult. With the smaller alveolar surface, remember that the surface area is in relation to the tension. And so if you have a smaller alveolar surface, there's going to be more tension. Like we talked about several episodes ago, the picture of kind of the balloon versus the paper bag type picture. So they're going to have a really, really stiff comparatively. I'm not trying to think like an arts picture here, but comparatively to an adult, they're going to have stiffer alveoli that is going to, again, decrease the compliance. And then you'll have lower vital capacity because you're not moving as much air. Their oxygen consumption, we talked about this all the way up when we talked about the normal vitals, is going to be double that of adults. And so their minute ventilation is going to have to match that. So they'll have to increase their respiratory rate. Your tidal volume remains normal compared to an adult, but how they manage this increased minute ventilation is by manipulating or increasing their respiratory rate, not their tidal volume. And so let's talk about how this is going to change throughout development in utero and then in the first few weeks to months after delivery. So in utero, we all know that type 2 pneumocytes are what produce surfactant. Well, this starts around 20 weeks gestation, and from then on, they're going to start to produce all this surfactant. The surfactant is what decreases the surface tension in this alveoli. So once they're born, given that they reach term, they have their full amount of surfactant, they should be able to reduce all the surface tension and open up all these alveolar sacs and allow for gas exchange. And that's one of the reasons why if you have a premature baby, they have respiratory complications simply because their surfactant isn't fully developed enough. Right. And if we're already having trouble with the surface tension because of the decreased surface area, this is just another compounding factor of that. If you have decreased surfactant, it's just like a double whammy on the compliance factor of these alveoli. And so, like you said, Cole, that's just an increased risk for these patients to have respiratory compromise. Exactly. And as we talk about the different types of compliances. So it's important to note the difference between chest wall compliance and then lung compliance. So specifically here, the chest wall compliance is going to be increased, meaning they're going to be able to expand their rib cage and move those muscles in a way that can open up their lung bigger comparatively to an adult. But like Tanner was saying, they might have problems actually expanding those, those alveoli. So that's important to note the difference there. 
Another quick point to make sure we understand is that they're going to have more type 2 muscle fibers comparatively to type 1. Basically, what we should get out of this is that they're going to be easier to fatigue. They can fatigue a lot faster. And so we need to keep in mind that if they do go into some respiratory distress, they're going to be able to fatigue a lot faster than the adult would. Now let's move on from the actual mechanics of the respiratory system to the structures of the respiratory system and what this looks like. When we're trying to gain uh, airway on these patients. And so the bronchi are going to take off at 55 degrees on both sides. So this is a difference from the adult patient where you're more at risk for right mainstem intubation because of the different degrees. The left one is more acute of an angle than the right bronchi. And so that's why the ET tube tends to go into that right main stem. With the neonate airway, those will both be equal. And so you could be equally as likely to go into the left main stem. So be sure, not that you wouldn't check anyways, but just be sure you're checking bilateral breath sounds and that you understand that that is an increased risk. You should know that their glottic opening is going to be a little bit higher at C3 or C4 compared to the adult where that's C4, C5. So it doesn't seem like all that much different, but when you're intubating a neonate, your distance that you need to go to actually get the tube through the cords is going to be a lot shorter, not only because you're dealing with a smaller human, but also just because that is going to be actually higher structurally at the C3, C4 level. Their epiglottis is going to be much more stiff than an adult epiglottis. Epiglottis on an adult is real floppy and will kind of sag down and, and fall in your way if you're not totally up in the molecular. Epiglottis with the neonate is going to be a lot more stiff. So the epiglottis is going to be a lot more responsive than it would be in an adult patient. Many times this isn't really even an issue because you tend to opt for the Miller blade instead of the Mac blade because it has a lower profile and it's easier to get into the neonate's mouth. And so oftentimes you just go directly over the epiglottis and pull everything up out of the way. So it's not really even an issue, but it is something to keep in mind. You should also remember that the narrowest point in the neonate's airway is the cricoid ring, not the glottic opening like an adult. So their larynx is shaped much more like a funnel than it is a cylinder as an adult. So you may have difficulty passing an improperly sized tube. Even if you get it through the cords, there's still a narrower spot just below the cords at the cricoid area. And so something to be mindful of as you're trying to intubate that airway. And I've seen literature show that it kind of varies. Some say for sure it's the cricoid. Some say it's still the glottic opening. So just know that Really, you have two narrow parts, and it's not like the adult airway, like Tanner was saying, where it's just a glottic opening. You're going to have two narrow parts to get through. It's either the cricoid ring or the glottic opening. And a lot of this airway stuff, we're going to do a specific talk regarding the induction sequence on pediatric patients, and we'll focus more on the airway when we go through that talk. So that wraps us up for the first talk we wanted to do on pediatric patients and the different changes that are going to occur after delivery and then after the first few months as they start to develop more into normal adult values. We want to spend a lot of time on cardiac here on another section. I know we didn't talk about it much today, but on the next topic that we do, we want to spend time going through the fetal circulation both in utero and then after delivery and how that changes and adapts more to a physiological and anatomical adult circulation and what abnormalities that we can see with different types of congenital heart 
defects and, and things like that. So stick with us for the next episode as we go through the cardiac side of things. Hopefully this helps understand some of the differences that you're going to see in pediatric patients.